0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflection into Paul's letter to Philemon, a reflection that has had us considering, once again, those principal themes of St. Paul. As I have been noting over the past few days, really St. Paul's letter to Philemon, these 25 verses are in microcosm what you will find in all of his epistles. Now, as we jump back into this study, yesterday I had talked about, ever so briefly, knowledge and the gift of knowledge, and when I left yesterday evening, I was thinking to myself, you know, I think I should go back to that a little bit, and I picked up a book off my shelf called The Sanctifier by Archbishop Luis Martinez. The Sanctifier by Archbishop Luis Martinez. Really, the classic work on the Holy Spirit. In point of fact, I am going to teach a course here that will start in a month or so online titled The Gift of the Holy Spirit and the Divine Indwelling, and this is going to be the principal work, and I'm really excited to engage uh, this book. It is a book that looks at systematically not only, you know, what true devotion to the Holy Spirit is about, but also the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, and the Beatitudes. So it really is (laughs) the Summa on the Holy Spirit. It is a a classic work, like I said, a classic read. On page 187 of this book, he gets into the gift of knowledge, and if you'd be so kind to allow me to read a little bit from Archbishop Martinez, so as to uh, understand what I was saying yesterday as it relates to The distinction to be had between knowledge and the gift of knowledge. This is, again, Archbishop Luis Martinez. If the natural order is so beautiful, so magnificent, we cannot doubt that the supernatural is even more so. Just as the statue surpasses in beauty the pedestal on which it rests, just as the jewel is richer than its setting— If in the natural order there is great wealth of intellectual gifts that integrate, so to say, the riches of our human knowledge, in the supernatural order and, above all, in that very lofty region where the gifts hold sway, there are also multiple and exceedingly rich gifts of the Spirit that enable us to have profound and perfect knowledge in or of the divine order. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) He goes on, In the supernatural order there is a very profound science that also makes wonderful discoveries. It is what the scriptures call the science of the saints. Saint Trez of Lisieux talks about this, by the way. We read in the Book of Wisdom, she guided him the just man in direct ways and gave him knowledge of holy things. This knowledge of the saints is divine knowledge. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Archbishop Martinez concludes, the gift of knowledge has some points in common with human knowledge and with the gift of wisdom, but it also possesses entirely distinctive marks. Human knowledge is that which makes things known through their immediate causes. To say this more simply, it is a man's natural understanding of creatures. That's so important, my friends. Man's natural understanding of creatures. The gift of wisdom looks deep into the very bosom of the divine, and from that high vantage point contemplates creatures. The gift of knowledge follows a different course. It gives us an understanding of creatures after the divine manner so that we may be able to lift ourselves from them to God. How beautiful is that? So, yesterday I was talking about human knowledge and the gift of knowledge. Human knowledge can be a good thing. This is what you hear in Archbishop Martinez, right? But my dear friends, is human knowledge an end and of itself? No. A means to an end. And it is there where we begin to espouse the gift of knowledge, that gift of the Holy Spirit that we might gain access into the ways that this knowledge can draw us into just not a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and those creatures and creation around us, but now how we can give glory to God with that new knowledge, with that new way, with that new knowledge, and how we can encounter those around us and and how we encounter creation itself. Today, there certainly is a tendency to be drawn to the beauty of creation but as an end in of itself, it leads to this kind of syncretism, it leads to this kind of reduction of its purpose, right? To see creation as a reflection of God, creation as God's first love letter to man. Then something changes inside of us, and it will change inside of us as we begin to ask for and acquire these great gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I thought uh, Archbishop Martinez had some important words for us. Okay, we are in Paul's letter to Philemon, and if we're going to complete this in uh, two weeks time, we do need to get back into these verses. Yesterday I had read verses 4 to 7 and touched upon a few things. I do want to go back to these verses before we get into verses 8 to 14, because there are a couple more pieces to be had. So we read in Paul's letter to Philemon, Verses 4 to 7. I give thanks to my God always, remembering you in my prayers, as I hear of the love and the faith you have in the Lord Jesus and for all the holy ones, so that your partnership in the faith may become effective in recognizing every good there is in us that leads to Christ. For I have experienced much joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the holy ones have been refreshed by you, brother. Now, something I didn't touch upon was that opening verse, Thanksgiving. It is so easy for us to just kind of read over Paul's use of giving thanks. As in the case of the address and greeting of this letter, when St. Paul comes to that typical convention of Thanksgiving, he's always mindful to write it with intention, right? He's, he's just not saying thank you. There's something deeper. So here, saint paul manages to infuse this standard element with christian feeling and purpose huh from the very first word eucharisto i give thanks paul is reminding his readers including you and i my friends that thanksgiving is the very foundation of our faith and relationship to god and one another for us as well as for our jewish ancestors uh, and i've spoken to this before gratitude for what God has first done for us is the primary motive for our actions that might be filled with virtue. This, my friends, is as true of the new covenant as it was of the first one. Indeed, since the early centuries, we have called our celebration of the Last Supper what? But the Eucharist, that is Thanksgiving, when we want to refresh our motivation as we make our way to participate in the weekly, or for some of us who can go daily, daily Eucharist, maybe a a simple and effective way is to ask oneself, what am I especially grateful for today? And then, of course, if you are at Mass, to make one's participation in the liturgy an expression of that gratitude. Please understand, my friends, that when we talk about the Eucharist, when we talk about that sacrament, which means Thanksgiving, we are talking about something that is profoundly, my friends, profoundly Christian and Catholic. It lies at the heart of our faith. Recall that when Jesus says in the upper room in Mark 14 24 and Luke twenty two nineteen 19 that, that this is the blood of the new covenant, essentially he is saying This is the blood of the New Testament. This is the New Testament. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave only a couple commands, the first of which was, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We know that commandment, but we often overlook that other commandment. Do this in remembrance of me. This is important because Jesus never said, write this, right? No, do this. And in following that command, what are the apostles doing? Establishing the Eucharist as the foundation of the new covenant of the New Testament, because the Eucharist is the New Testament. Remember, before it was a corpus of books, it was first Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. And only, what, 370 years later did we actually have the New Testament. I have said that sometimes, if not all the time, the most important apologetic of our Christian faith, is history itself. History did not spring forth from non-event, my friends, okay? And if we are going to have a very real conversation with our faith, then we have to have that conversation with the past, because only then can we begin to understand what our Christian faith is about. So for Paul, he's intentional here. I am grateful and he uses the Greek eucharisto. This is the very word, and you can hear it when we get the word eucharist. The household of God there in the surrounding area of Colossia certainly was already establishing the Eucharist as the centerpiece. We see this at the end of Acts 2, them celebrating the breaking of the bread. That was the Last Supper because it was the identity of the first Christians. It was the source and summit of the first Christians as it is today, right? Right? As it is today. So I wanted to touch upon that before we treated verses 8 to 14 because here again you have uh, something that is very Eucharistic. Remember what I said. You have in this epistle that which is a microcosm of Paul's larger themes in his other epistles. And certainly we see the Eucharist in his other epistles. All right, if you can now thumb down to verse 8 and we will read verses 8 to 14. Therefore, although I have the full right in Christ to order you to do what is proper, I rather urge you out of love, being as I am, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I urge you on behalf of my child, one Simus, whose father I become in my imprisonment, who was once useless to you, but is now useful to both you and me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I should have liked to retain him for myself so that he might serve me on your behalf in my imprisonment for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that the good you do might not be forced, but voluntary. Okay, what's going on here? Well, take note of that first word, therefore. <laughs> the word therefore is a signal, a clear signal that the contents the thanksgiving that I was just talking about, are the things that encouraged Paul to make his request. The thanksgiving was not a mere pleasantry, but a preparation for what he was about to say. Now, Paul alludes to this right, and this Greek here is fascinating. Right to order. The Greek here for right is parisia. It is rare in Paul's writing and refers more to confidence and boldness than to maybe the right that underlies an attitude. And the word for order is this very robust, strong word. And you see it used elsewhere by Jesus Christ. And if you want to get a real sense of what this word means, consider the context to which Jesus uses the word order. He uses it when he's commanding demons to be expelled from the person that they are in. I command you, I order you, I deliver you. So there's a real sense of the authority here and power that is working in through Paul in this moment. And this is the only time, my friends, that St. Paul uses this Greek word. And so one ought to ask, gosh, if this is the same Greek word that Jesus uses when he's expelling demons, what is going on here when he says, I have the right to order? Well, there's great power when our confidence is in God. The same kind of power that can expel demons. This, I believe, my friends, is extremely important for you and I. Because, again, remember, the right is about confidence in God. When we have confidence in God, we can do extraordinary things, things that that are filled with great power. When St. Paul says, I have a right to order, he is saying, I am confident that the power of Christ that is living within me, that same power that expels demons, can get you to understand that in your leadership, in your virtue, there's something transcendent in being merciful, and mercy itself is a great power, a power that expels demons. Remember, this whole thing is setting up for him to forgive, to forgive one Simon's debt as a bond servant. This is the context. So it is not a reach and a point of fact, I would dare say, the proper interpretation here to understand that. St. Paul's request of Philemon to be merciful towards one Simus has underneath it this deeper truth that there is extraordinary, extraordinary power behind giving mercy. And I believe that to be the quintessential point to this evening. Hopefully, the remainder of this evening will have important things to say, but be rest assured that will be the most important thing, that there is great power and mercy Great power and mercy. So, <laughs> where does Paul get this confidence to order Philemon to do the right thing? Well, my friends, simply the most likely answer is that Paul was instrumental in Philemon's Christian conversion and mentored him in Christian leadership. Furthermore, while he could claim his authority as an apostle, he chooses not to exploit. The power of this relationship as he makes his request. Paul expresses the same attitude in a more developed way elsewhere when he speaks to why he does not insist on his rights. Uh, We talked about this in 1st Corinthians 19, right, where he does not insist on his rights but as an apostle chooses rather to make himself a slave to all. Here bringing to light what we talked about yesterday, the great power in being a captive of Christ for the cause of Christ? How about this urging? I rather urge you out of love. Here, rather than pulling rank, Paul elects to lean on his relationship with Philemon as a fellow Christian, but he also enlists the emotional appeal of his condition once again as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This probably is the central theme to this very short letter, that all that is good comes out of who he is as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You know, Aristotle, who had much to say on virtue, started here. He said, if you want to know what virtue is about, watch the good man. I was hearing someone talk about this recently. You know, you, before you read a great treatise on virtue, just watch the good man act and truly observe the good man act, and you will see virtue being exercised, huh? Virtus being exercised. We were just talking about power. Virtus, where we get the word virtue, means power, right? Power. Vir, the prefix for virtue, means manliness, huh? Uh, Power. Strength. Strength. Virtue has strength. So, virtue. Aristotle says, watch the good man We all intuitively know who a good man is, and I might encourage you to do what Aristotle encourages us to do. Observe the good man, and you will observe cardinal virtue, fruits of the Spirit, all of those virtues that make up the good man. Okay, so in verses 10 to 11 at last, St. Paul introduces the name of the person who will be the subject of his request, one Simus. Now, the original addressees would have recognized the name of a member of Philemon's household. Even those who did not know the man would have recognized the name, a name which means useful, right, as a common slave moniker. Paul describes one Simus as, what does he say here? My child whose father I have become in my imprisonment, or that again can also be translated as while I was in chains. So having heard Paul describe his relationship with fellow Christians with similar metaphors, as we have already talked about, such as what brother, uh, sister, fellow soldier, we should not be surprised to hear him use these phrases, my child and and whose father I have become, as another figure of speech. We see Saint Paul speak elsewhere in his letters of his paternal role in the new birth of christian conversion what did we talk about in 1 corinthians chapter 4 even if you should have countless guides to christ yet you do not have many fathers for i became your father in christ through the gospel does this not speak to priesthood right priests are fathers to the degree that they became our spiritual fathers in christ jesus through the gospel 1 Corinthians 4:15, and certainly here, as we're reading uh, Philemon verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, speak to uh, the priesthood, for sure. Now, this Christian conversion of the slave one Simus uh, has beautiful implications, and these verses certainly got my attention. <laughs> I'd say I love when the Greek kind of does a word play, kind of juxtaposes certain greek to highlight a deeper truth and that is what's going on here when saint paul refers to one simus as the one who was useless to you but is now useful to both you and me there are two kinds of wordplay here okay first paul alludes to the literal meaning of the name your man useful became quite useless to you while absent from your household. But now, I'm sending him back to you as truly useful. You see that? Beautiful. Second, those who heard the letter, read aloud, would have noticed, and the commentaries speak to this, Father Ham notes this, would have noticed a a pun in the contrast between akriston, in the Greek, and euchriston in the Greek, which can be heard as, when you translate it, not Christed and well Christed. That is to say, my friends, when you look at the Greek here, what you have is one simus, who was once previously without Christ, is now with Christ. One simus, who was one not Christed, is now well Christed. I love that. I absolutely love that. Verse 12, I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to. Recall what we said about this yesterday when we spoke of hearts. The Greek translated, what, bowels, internal organs, and and also guts. Now, we use the word hearts because it's easier on the ears. But I think bowels, internal organs, and guts does speak to the humanness, if you will, of St. Paul here. And I believe this to be very important. You know, as Paul says, I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. And he says this on the hills of this uh, not-Christed and, and well-Christed with one Simus. we ought to be thinking about our own relationships, should we not? Here we have to ask ourselves the question, am I all about what I can get out of a relationship? That is to say, that I interact with people for the sole purpose of seeing how they might be useful for me? Or do we engage one another with this mindset that we always have something to give? Huh? We always have something to give. So is it what I can get out of a relationship or what I can give a relationship? Is it how they can be useful to me or how I can be useful to them? St. Paul offers for us a subtle challenge here and that is how we think about our relationships with one another. St. John Paul II once said that as things are created to be used and people to be loved, we use people and love things. We use people and love things. All of our relationships need to bear fruit. They need to be life-giving. If they're going to bear fruit and be life-giving, then we need to be in this mindset not so much what we can get out of this relationship, but what we can give to this relationship. And as we have these daily challenges before us when we read sacred scripture, this is another one. And I think this is something that challenges us in a very concrete way, because we find ourselves interacting with one another on a daily basis all the time. And in everything that we do, really, We're either moving towards what we can get out of it or what we can give it. How we can break down or how we can build up. St. Paul offers for us a subtle challenge, and it's one that comes out of his very lived experience. St. Paul is a man of virtue. Uh, Aristotle would have us looking at St. Paul as a what but good man. If you want to learn about virtue, observe St. Paul and maybe for you and I 2,000 years later, right? Observe the humanity of St. Paul in his letter. You're going to see goodness, right? He's intervening on behalf of one Simus. He's affirming Philemon in his leadership. He's revealing to us that he is a man of virtue, that he is a man of truth. He is a man of power and strength, and a power and strength that, as he is very quick to point out, is one that comes from Jesus Christ, as he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the cause of Jesus Christ. All right, with that, let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, an evening from which to reflect into your goodness and how you call us to live in that uh, great transcendental truth, that great attribute of goodness we ask that you might pour your goodness into our hearts, that we might bear witness to goodness itself, and that those around us might experience your goodness in and through us. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.